Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of James. We're going to read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So I invite you to open your Bibles there, or you can also follow along on the screen behind me. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. So um, for the last several months, we've been kind of slowly going through the book of James, starting in chapter 1. And now we're looking at the very first part of chapter 2. Today's text is on the sin of partiality. Before we get into that text, though, um, because we're going to compare this to God's character, because that is how we define what is acceptable and what's not, I want to read a passage from Deuteronomy 10. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So today we're looking at James 2, 1 to 13, where James addresses the church over the sin of partiality. And for context, remember that James, who's a Jewish Christian himself, is writing to the early church. They're scattered among the nations, and they're very much oppressed by an unbelieving culture. Many of these Christians that he's writing to had converted from Judaism after hearing of the risen Lord Jesus Christ but they sometimes had fundamental misunderstandings of how to apply the word of the Lord. Sometimes they had legalistic holdovers from Judaism, um, and sometimes they just needed help understanding what James calls the law of liberty or the law of love. So in this text that we're looking at today, the sin of partiality, uh, the example that James uses is when a rich man and a poor man are treated very differently by the local assembly there. They favor the rich man, he's well-dressed, he's impressive. They offer him the best seat, but they despise the poor man who's not well-dressed. He's in shabby clothing, he does not look important. They make him sit on the ground or don't let him sit at all. Right? If this were a car ride, this is like offering shotgun to one person while making the other person sit on that console in the middle. Right? One's a place of honor, more comfortable spot, one's an afterthought, it's the leftovers. 
Now, I doubt very many of us make this a habit in our daily lives, right? Making a public showing of how much we like some people while being blatantly rude to others. But scripture also teaches that we can sin with our hearts and our minds, right? Without ever doing anything with our hands. You can be innocent of the sin of an adulterous affair, but still be guilty of the sin of lust. You can be innocent of murder, yet still hate your brother in your heart, and therefore be guilty. So as we read this text and we go through it, let's carefully consider how God's commandment to love our neighbor actually plays out in our daily lives, right? As we're reading this, let's think, do, do we in, ta- in fact tend to avoid some people while gravitating toward others? Do we show extra kindness to our closest friends, but the bare minimum to those who annoy us? Let's keep that in mind as we go through. The point I want to make today is, is really simple. There is no partiality in the life of a Christian. There's no room for it because we are loved by a God who is impartial himself, and he demonstrates this through Christ. Now, some more context. So in the very last chapter of verse 1, James says that pure religion, right, real faith, is one that visits the orphans and the widows in their affliction and keeps oneself unstained from the world. So we can think of this as like a command for generosity, living in faithfulness, especially in regard to loving others. And starting in chapter 2, James starts to talk about faith and works going hand in hand, and he's really consistent about that through the rest of the book. Even though we're not covering the, the famous faith without works is dead passage today, we are talking about obedience that comes from our faith. And so I think it makes a little bit of a sense to explain. As Christians... One thing we always have to keep in mind is a right understanding of our faith and works. James teaches us that our works are evidence of our faith, right? And merely an intellectual faith that bears no fruit, right, good works, is a dead faith. That's no faith at all. If you have a faith that's just an intellectual assent, uh, consent to the Lord's holiness, but you don't ever actually back it up with fruit, then there's reason to believe that that faith is no good. So it ought to strike us as odd when we see someone who claims to be a Christian yet is showing partiality, right? They they don't seem to show any sort of fruit in their daily life. In in fact, they seem quite happy with their sins, no signs of remorse or repentance. That's the sort of tension that I want us to look at today, showing favoritism while claiming to love our brothers and sisters. And of course, the appropriate response to sin like that when we see it is repentance, But that means we have to look at it really closely without shrinking back, and we do it through the lens of God's Word itself. So our aim today is to do just that. We want to reform our hearts and conform to the Word. We want to reform our hearts and conform them to the Word. So as we look at the sin of partiality or favoritism, uh, two words for the same thing, we'll see how this kind of behavior really is sin. It's not just personal preference, right? I just don't like those kinds of people. We'll see that it's sin by God's standards, which is always our litmus test. And when we look at the example of God's love for us, demonstrated by Christ, we'll see the sheer incompatibility of favoritism and the character of Christ. So let's start by looking at verses one through five. In your outline, this is point number one, the sin of partiality defined by God. So the first thing we see here is that this is addressed to Christians who are practicing favoritism or partiality. In this hypothetical example, Christians are meeting together either in a church or it could be more of a courtroom setting that's a little bit more consistent with some of the legal language that James uses. But regardless, they're making a show of favoring the rich and the wealthy man, paying extra attention to him, while they disregard and dishonor the poor man. 
The rich man here is characterized by having gold rings, usually a sign of importance or prominence. He's very well dressed. In other words, this is somebody who matters. They look interesting. They look influential. By outward appearances, they're clearly important in society. This example that James uses shows how believers are making doubly sure in this local gathering that this person gets the best seat in the house. Maybe this is because they want to be well thought of. Maybe they think this is going to benefit them sometime in the future. I think it's not a stretch at all to say that when we consider how we are sometimes partial to other people, when we do that, there's typically a selfish gain to it, right? We, we have some sort of self-interest, right? If you're at a gathering, sometimes our own self, selfish interest will have us gravitate towards the most influential person there. Maybe we'll become more popular by extension. Maybe there's a future job we're hoping to get. We're making new friends. Sometimes we have a tendency to show off to the most popular ones who are well-liked, hoping that we too will be well-liked. That's the sort of treatment that the rich person gets in verse 3. It's starkly contrasted by how, they believe, uh, how these believers treat the poor, right? They dishonor him. The poor man is not well-dressed. In fact, he's wearing filthy clothes. He's not at all impressive to the eye. This person is relegated to the floor, or he's not even permitted to sit at all. He doesn't get any sort of preferential treatment. He actually receives the opposite. James says, you've dishonored the poor man. So the Greek word for partiality here is, is transliter transliterated to receiving the faith, um, judging by outward appearances. It's a, a Greek rendering of the original Hebrew word for discrimination. And Scripture teaches us, though, that God himself does not judge just outward appearances, but instead looks at the heart. So James is not merely talking about this sin as though it were just superficial, but what's going on in our hearts. To illustrate why this is a sin, James explains in verse 5, because God himself has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So this sin of favoritism is not just against a poor person, but it's against God's people. Now, I want to make one point of clarification here. James is not saying that only the poor are granted salvation or that salvation is just guaranteed to the poor or the humble simply because they're poor and humble, lowly. Rather, he's remembering God's word itself. He's remembering that God has chosen the poor, both poor in spirit and poor in wealth and possessions, to be his heritage. The key phrase here that he uses is, which he has promised to those who love him. We saw that again in, back in chapter 1. The crown of life is promised to those who love him. So we're talking about Christians who are lowly, who are humble, who are poor. And it is true that God is near to the lowly hearted and the downtrodden. This is important because we see repeatedly in the Old Testament, God rebukes the rich and the wealthy for persecuting the poor, taking advantage of them. In fact, in our next point, that's one of the arguments that we look against, why it makes no sense to sort of suck up to the rich and the wealthy. And remember... In the Old Testament law, there were lots of special protections and provisions for the poor and for the oppressed, right? If they couldn't afford a sacrifice, there were provisions made for them so that they could go and sacrifice before the Lord with everyone else. There were protections put in place so that they couldn't go into excessive debt. And then there are warnings to the other Israelites. There's that example in Deuteronomy 15 where you had year six, and then year seven is the year of remission when all debts are paid or all debts are uh, forgiven. And the Lord says, you be careful. Don't deny your brother in need alone, lest you think in your heart, 
the seventh year of remission is coming up. I'm not getting paid back for that. Yeah, you're right, you're not. And he says, do not deny that kindness to your brother because that will be counted to you as sin. So all of this helps us define the sin of partiality using God's standards and, and not just our own, right? If the Lord himself is impartial and he shows kindness to us, though we are lowly, then the Christians that James is addressing here, they are sinning by not showing that same kind of love to all their brothers and sisters in Christ. And how do we know that God is impartial? Again, we look to the scriptures. This is all about defining things as God does. In Deuteronomy 7, God explicitly says he did not choose Israel because they were the greatest nation, because they were actually the fewest of all people. But it was because he loved them and he kept his oath that he swore to their forefathers. The Lord shows no partiality with us, and that's a good thing because we actually do not deserve his favor at all. None of us have ever done anything good enough. None of us have ever made an offering so grand that the Lord has been compelled to extend special grace to us, right? None of us have added to our salvation or increased the likelihood that we would be saved from the way that we lived. It's purely by God's mercy, and it's impartial. Consider the passage in Second Chronicles. If you remember when Jehoshaphat was king over Judah at the time, He's leading a reformation, and he tells the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. 2 Chronicles 19. Paul, in the New Testament, also speaks of God's impartiality. What he talks about is righteous judgment in Romans 2, or when he talks about slaves and masters in Colossians 3. They're all using the same word here, the one that James uses. God judges fairly and righteously without partiality, without playing favorites. This is because God, who has written his law on our hearts, is a God who is fair and impartial. The Lord does not take bribes. He cannot be bought or impressed with fancy gifts, and judges and kings are commanded to imitate this as they rule over people. But it's not just for judges and kings, is it? It's for every citizen of God's kingdom. We're to treat each other in the same way without favoritism. This is not just a, a rule for the high and mighty in positions of authority who are making decisions in the courtroom. This is for all of us. The end of verse 4 really settles the matter for us, doesn't it? says, in showing partiality, the Christian and James example have become like judges with evil thoughts. So the sin of partiality is what we want to define here, and we want to use God's word as a standard, right? This is always how we define sin, not by how it makes us feel or even by the consequences, but it's by God's word itself. So this is point number one, sin defined by the Lord. Let's move to verses 6 to 11. I want to look at the two arguments that James lays out here, this is point number two in your outline, a rational and a spiritual argument against favoritism. So the first argument that James gives is more logical. It's rational. It appeals to our good senses. So in six and seven, James points out the irrationality of showing favoritism towards the rich. Why? Because they're the ones who are dragging you into court. They're the ones demanding money. They're oppressing you. They're blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called. Now, this name could mean the name of Christ. They're literally cursing the name of God and blaspheming. That's one interpretation. But it also could be that they were using the name Christian as a pejorative, as an insult, 
right? Check out these Christians over here. Good night. They're, either way, they are um, disparaging the Christians there, either by the name by which they're called or by Christ himself. But the bottom line is they're not nice. And in those days, uh, social hierarchy was more of a prominent part of culture than it is today, right? The rich are treated well, the poor are, are largely despised. We still have that same heart issue today, but by and large, our economy is, is built for everyone, right? Anybody can go to the grocery store, anybody can go to the Chevy dealership, buy a new truck, anybody can go into town hall and attend a meeting and, and so on and so forth. But in a culture where the poor regularly suffered oppression from the rich, where that class distinction was more pronounced, right? They're exploited for money and labor, they go into excessive debt and things like that. James is saying it makes no practical sense for lowly Christians in this example to suck up to the wealthy, right? It's not that being wealthy is a sin or being prominent is a sin and influential. That, that's clearly a blessing from God, but it does come with its own temptations and pitfalls. James is asking the question, though, why do this to the people who aren't nice to you? Why do this to people who don't hold the same values as you? Why do you do this to the people who make fun of your Christianity? You're sinning against your brothers and sisters. So the first argument against favoritism or partiality that James is offering here is a rational one. But notice that there's a spiritual argument here that's significantly more important. So James references Leviticus 19 in verse 8 when he says, You do well to obey the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself showing partiality is a sin, and therefore you're convicted by the law as transgressors. So James is talking in legal language now. He's not referring to the law of liberty, which he mentions in verse 12. He's talking about the law of Moses, which serves to condemn. This law is the impossible standard that nobody can keep perfectly. And he's also talking in hypotheticals. And because he's doing that, another way we could read this is to say, hey, even if it were possible to perfectly love your neighbor as yourself, and it's not, but even if it were possible and you show partiality, then you're convicted by the law. And the following verses that further illustrate that principle that we're so familiar with, right? One sin is enough to damn us. One of the reasons James speaks like this is because some of the early Christians he's addressing here still had holdovers from Jewish culture, legalistic thinking, right? Some Jewish teaching would kind of rank sins from bad to worse, and they would think about things in like a debit and a credit system. As long as you avoid the big sins, don't do too many of the little sins. Make sure you do lots of good works. Your scales are more or less balanced. That's a very legalistic way of thinking, and, and James is not saying that that's the case here. He's saying the opposite. In fact, he's citing two of the Ten Commandments here, right? Adultery, murder, as examples of laws that Christians must keep. Everyone who keeps the law, yet they fail in one point, has become guilty of it all, right? The law of God is, is like a giant plate of glass, right? It doesn't matter where you hit it with that rock. The whole thing shatters. You're guilty of it all. So the spiritual argument against the sin of partiality is that it violates God's royal law of love. It's incompatible with the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Just as you can sin through anger without ever actually committing 
the sin of adultery, just as, uh, sin of murder, just as you can sin through lust without committing the sin of adultery. Right? You can sin through favoritism while outwardly proclaiming to love your neighbor, yet showing partiality in your heart, in your actions. If you've read James before, you can see how this kind of fits into his overall theme of works and faith in this chapter, right? Having just an intellectual faith without works that show evidence of that faith, well, that's a dead faith. That's no faith at all. That is not the faith that we hold today. If we claim the name of Christ, and we do, then we ought to seek to love our neighbor without partiality, making no judgments in our hearts not favoring one person over the other to win worldly approval. Our faith ought to go hand in hand with loving our neighbor, not playing favorites. So I want to look now at verse 12, at the law of liberty, to see how we are to act. So this is point number three in your outline, God's perfect love demonstrated by Christ. So if the, if the passage starts out as saying, do not show partiality as you hold the faith, this is the so. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, so act and so speak as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, when James says that, he says, act and speak as those who are about to be judged, who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's saying a lot in just a few words. And as with a lot of James's points that he makes here, the theology lesson is implied. With Paul, we get a lot of Christology and a lot of expounding on the nature of Christ and the qualifications. Uh, James doesn't really do that. He just sort of implies that you understand this. So let's break it down a little bit. So in the previous verses from verse 12, James is referring to the law of Moses. Remember, it's Christ himself in Matthew 22 who summarizes the Ten Commandments into just two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets all hang on these two commandments. The law of liberty that James is talking here in verse 12 refers to the law of grace that we Christians are now under through Christ. By rising from the dead and fulfilling the law and the prophets, the Lord Jesus now offers us salvation through grace by faith. Therefore, the law of liberty does not judge us in the salvific sense. Right? James is not saying we ought to live in fear of committing favoritism because it will lose our salvation, it will damn us. He's not saying that. He's saying that a Christian's life will be judged on its faithfulness and its obedience by Christ on the last day. We'll all give an account of how we have lived our lives. That's what verse 12 is talking about. Remember in Romans 14, it says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So James is making that kind of a warning in verse 12. We need to act and speak. We need to love our neighbors both in word and in deed and in our hearts as though we were going to be judged by Christ himself because we will. We will give an account for our actions. This is not the final seat of judgment. This is not, he's not talking about our salvation. He's talking about our faithfulness, our obedience. As Christians, we can be sure that our eternal state has been secured by Christ himself. None who belong to the Son can be taken out of the Father's hand. Right? He is the shepherd that does not lose his sheep. 
Christ is the shepherd that does not lose his sheep. So when we read verse 12, we ought to understand that because the sin of partiality goes against God's command to love our neighbors, we learn to hate that sin and repent of it when we sense it in our hearts. Knowing that we'll be judged under the law of liberty and give an account for our lives, we ought to strive to imitate God's perfect love for us. The love that is impartial, the love that does not take bribes or harbor secret, harbor secret intentions. It does not seek to be repaid. God's love for us is pure because he is pure. As we saw in chapter one, there is no shadow of turning with him. We echoed scripture earlier when we sang that the Lord is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he abounds in steadfast love. These are the examples that we want to try and imitate. Now, earlier I said that I don't think many of us practice favoritism as explicitly as James's example here. Hopefully, we don't avoid our brothers and sisters who look different from us or come from different backgrounds or different tax brackets. But some sins are more external. They're easy to spot it's easy to call those out. But I think favoritism can sometimes be hidden in our hearts. Or sometimes we can hide them behind harmless gestures, right? Like the Israelite who was conveniently out of office during the sixth year when his brother in need needed a loan, and he secretly feared that he wouldn't ever be repaid. Can't we sometimes modify our plans to avoid certain people? Maybe it's a lot of fun to have the Johnsons over for dinner, but the Jones are a little too uh, out there. Right? Plus, we heard that they don't discipline our kids quite like we do. Maybe we avoid saying hi to a sister at church going through a hardship. We've only got a few minutes before the service starts. We really wanted to talk with the elder about our new ministry idea. Maybe we tend to block off our calendars for our best friends, but we're too busy to try and get to know the new family that just moved in from out of state. My point here is that we might have ostensibly good reasons for our favoritism, but the reality is, is that the love of the Lord doesn't make those kinds of distinctions, does it? We want to avoid becoming like judges with evil thoughts and instead extend the love of God to our neighbors, loving them as we would want to be loved ourselves. Let's look at the very last verse. This is point number four in your outline, the application of a life of mercy and love. So in verse 13, James is saying that judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There are two ways we need to read this verse. So first is in the negative. Those who are not in Christ in the first place. For those who are not in Christ in the first place, and they prove it by not showing mercy to others, God's judgment will be without mercy. James is, is kind of flipping the beatitude right into its negative, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And he's saying, those who don't show mercy will not receive any mercy from God. We also saw that in the parable of the unbelieving or the uh, ungrateful servant, right? This servant uh, in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18, he, he has a very large debt forgiven, uh, and he's very grateful for it. But on the way home, he encounters somebody else who owes him a very small debt, Instead of showing mercy, he throttles this guy. He demands to be paid right back now. Well, his original master hears about that, and he's horrified by it. Judgment is actually pronounced upon that servant, and he gets thrown in jail until all of his payments uh, are made, right? 
initially he had his debt forgiven, but because he didn't show mercy to the one who owed him a small debt, that guy's giant debt is now back on the table. He has to go to jail until he repays it. The warning to the church in this passage is that if you continue down this path of showing no mercy and playing favorites when people come into your gathering, you can expect a judgment with no mercy. That's the warning here, and it's entirely consistent with Scripture. But the second way we can read this, so that would be the first way, the second way we could read this is, um, or that we need to read this, is for the Christian that is obedient in his faith and shows mercy to others, their mercy is a credit to them. So now we're reading this in the positive. For the Christian who is obedient in your faith and is showing mercy to others, their mercy is a credit to them. It's an evidence of Christ at work in their heart. This isn't something that saves them, but it's evidence of Christ at work in their heart. That Christian can be assured that God's eternal judgment will not be on him on the final day. Because that Christian is obedient in his faith and shows mercy to others, their mercy is a credit to them. That's made possible only by Christ's substitutionary work on the cross, isn't it? And they have full confidence and assurance of their salvation. So how do we work this out in our lives today? How do we avoid the sin of partiality? I just have two points of application, and I hope they're helpful. First, let's recognize that partiality is inconsistent with the law of love, which comes from God himself. God shows us perfect love in Christ, and it is without partiality or favorites. This non-discriminatory love should prompt us to show the same kind of love to others, unlike the forgiving, unforgiving servant, right, who quickly forgets the mercy that he was shown. Unlike him, we ought to counteract our tendency towards favoritism by remembering that we are imitating God's love out of thankfulness. He's adopted us as sons and daughters in his kingdom. We are, after all, the poor in spirit. We are the ones who are humble and lowly, and we are promised an inheritance. A Russian philosopher said that the line between good and evil it runs straight up and down. It doesn't run through race or through class or through the economy. It runs straight up and down through the middle of every person's heart, everyone the exact same. There is no good or better when it comes to being saved. We all equally deserve God's wrath and therefore do not deserve His mercy. None of us have done anything to earn God's mercy. So who are we to deny loving kindness to our brothers simply because they look different? Second, we remember that showing partiality or playing favorites is a fool's errand. It's done by those who have forgotten that they themselves were unfavored, that they were outcast, brought in by God's mercy, right? We love God and by extension our neighbor because we were first loved by him. The point here is that we want to avoid the sin of favoritism by remembering God's love for us, using that as a reminder the way that we need to love each other. I do want to say, as we bring our time to a close, I want us to remember, you know, anytime we look at a passage like this, when we look at sin, and we really take a close look at it, right? There are no explanations or excuses to cover it up. And we examine our own hearts to see if it aligns with God's word. There's a real temptation to despair, I think there is. And to, to think that because we're guilty of this sin, right, we've done this before, we're going to stand condemned before God and we'll see, receive no mercy. 
This confuses our justification and our sanctification, right? We stand on the promises of our God, and He has promised life to all who repent and believe. If you've repented of your sins and are trusting in Christ for your salvation, relying solely upon His finished and substitutionary work on Calvary's cross, then He is all your justification. That's it. When the Father looks upon your life, He sees not your sins, but Christ's righteousness. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then you have been raised with Him. Now, this doesn't mean we never sin. Sometimes we do, egregiously. Though we have the Spirit in our hearts guiding us, moving us to repentance, we're not perfectly mature in faith. We won't be. It'll be like this forever until Christ returns or we're with God forever. This kind of sin disrupts our relationship with God, but it does not disrupt our position before Him. The sin breaks fellowship and communion with God, but it doesn't change your status from redeemed to unforgiven. That's the process of sanctification practice of killing sin and imitating Christ in obedience to God's Word. This letter of James and this passage and so many others in Scripture are intended to encourage and instruct us in righteousness. So my encouragement is, as you see evidences of mercy and love and obedience in your life, be encouraged the Spirit is at work in you. If you are a Christian convicted by your sin and you're moved to repentance, then praise God for the Spirit working in your heart. Be restored to the Father through His mercy. Walk forward in obedience and give thanks. If you're haunted by your sins, though, and you cannot remove them yourself, if you are weighed down by guilt that just doesn't get any lighter, then look upon Christ. Think about John 3.16. Most famous verse in the Bible, sometimes we, we tend to think that the so, for God so loved the world, refers to God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. But if you look at the two verses before that, they tell the story of Moses in the desert with the Israelites. He lifts up the serpent on the, sna- on the staff so that all the afflicted Israelites who had been bitten would look upon it and be healed. They just had to look and they were healed. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. This call is simple. Repent and believe. There is no test to pass. There's no theology quiz to answer. There's no prerequisite for having lived a good life. If you are apart from Christ, then the call to you and to every sinner who needs a Savior is that Christ is that Savior. The free gift of faith is yours. Knock and the door shall be opened. Let's close our time here and pray and let's pray that we are prompted by the Spirit to avoid the sin of partiality, to find that sin in our hearts, to root it out, and to instead show the love of God to our brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that God does, impartially, perfectly, without playing favorites. So let's pray. Let's worship at the table as we remember the deep love of Jesus who rescues us from our sins and gives us new life. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the way that you have redeemed us the way that you have given us an inheritance in your kingdom. And Lord, we know that we don't deserve this. Lord, help us to consider your perfect love, the way that you love us impartially, the way that you do not play favorites with us, the way that you love us based on your own character not on what we've done. 
Lord, help us to avoid making these kinds of distinctions in our hearts. Help us to imitate the law of love as we see demonstrated perfectly by Christ. Help us to do that and walk forward in obedience that we might be kind to one another and that we might show the love of Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name and amen.